Good morning. I'm Sana, and I'm so excited that we are spending another Monday morning together. You are listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So go ahead and grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Over the past year, we've seen increasing attention to racial and gender inequality, in part because of how the pandemic has exacerbated these inequalities across a variety of domains. So employment, health, income, just to name a few. But how do people make sense of these inequalities and does their attitude regarding one affect the other? To answer these questions and more, today I'm joined by two guests, Drs. William J. Scarborough and Joanna R. Pepin. Dr. Scarborough is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. His research focuses on culture, economic growth, and inequality across U.S. labor markets. He has also published in multiple academic journals and public outlets, including Social Science Research, Gender and Society, and the Harvard Business Review. He is the co-editor of the Handbook of the sociology of gender. Dr. Pepin is an assistant professor in the University of Buffalo's Department of Sociology. As a family sociologist, she studies inequality as it is woven through couple and family relations. Her research focuses on the social paradox in which gains in women's financial resources are often ineffective at reducing gender inequality within families. Another research stream explores how historical time and place contribute to gender inequality within families and the growing divergence in outcomes among women. Her current research addresses the ways family composition and gendered relationship patterns perpetuate gender inequalities in health. Good morning, Drs. William and Joanna, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yes, I'm so glad to have you both here with us this morning. So first, I just want to say congratulations on your forthcoming article in the American Sociological Review. And we're going to dive into that research in a moment. But before we do, I just wanted to know, how did both of you become interested in gender research? Why this topic out of all the possible topics that you could have studied? Um, I'll jump in, Joanna. Um, Yeah, well, you know, it's really something that motivated my interest in sociology from the beginning. Um, You know, I went to undergrad with an interest to be a social worker, working with people, do some kind of good. And just like most people who pursue a career in sociology, took the intro to sociology course and started to think of inequality as a structural condition, as um, aspects of society that lead to these ends where some people have more advantages and other people have other barriers. And, um, you know, it sort of just opened my eyes, right? Sociologists talk about the sociological imagination that they come to acquire in in oftentimes in these classes. Um, And that sort of um, brought about this passion to understand where these inequalities are coming from um, and what I can do to um, address them. And based on my strengths, which developed over the years, I came to sort of realize that research was one of them. So therefore I pursued a PhD in sociology and that led me to be a professor. Awesome. And Joanna, what about you? So my plan was to become a um, couple and family therapist. And once I was enrolled in my, my program, I was 
really fascinated by um, the cultural mes messages that people were internalizing about what they thought a relationship should be or, or could be. Um, and so I was encountering couples who were really struggling with issues of sharing power and care work in their relationships. And I went on to work with domestic violence survivors. Um, and then I ultimately, you know, returned to academia and I wanted to like explore the spectrum of of power in relationships. So, you know, the everyday mon Monday things like who is doing the dishes or putting the kid down for bed, and, you know, to the more extreme, you know, violence, who's, you know, asserting power and control in the relationship. So um, all of that is, you know, related to, to gender inequality within society and within um, families. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I love how both of you really took this approach of I want to kind of do something about what's going on around me and learning through your coursework and through, you know, all your PhD programs, what that might actually look like, right? In the many different ways that could possibly look. And this key point that kind of surfaced in both of um, your interests, thinking about power relations, right? And I know we're going to talk more about that in a moment, but thinking about the things that we see, whether it's in relationships or, you know, in families or whatnot, that it is embedded in these larger structural conditions. And there are various power relations at play with within that as well. So I know we're going to talk a lot about racial attitudes, gender attitudes, um, how they converge or diverge. But before we get into the meat of all that, could you just kind of tell us basically when we're talking about these gender attitudes or racial attitudes, what, what does that really mean? So one, one of the things I really am interested in is what people think is appropriate behavior um, and appropriate attitudes for people in society. And this is often based on people's gender or their skin color. Um, so when we're talking about gender attitudes, we're, I'm interested in measuring, you know, what should be the same and, and what people think should be different and then how those are related to power structures. Uh, and so for race, um, you, you know, we can also talk about like, where do people think inequality stems from? <laughs> um, what, what are the, um, things that lead people to have different experiences in society. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, William, did you want to add something to that? Oh, yeah. I would just add to um, Joanna's response that attitudes at the individual level really reflect sort of like cultural ideologies and, and norms that influence social policy, um, that influence the minutia of decisions about who gets hired, who gets downsized, etc. And so although in our paper and a lot of papers that study attitudes focus on them as individual uh, characteristics, they really have huge and far reaching consequences when aggregated um, to the society level. Mm -hmm. And I think that part of it is so important. It's not only what we think is appropriate for men, women, or anyone else to be doing, but then how that's impacting these decisions that we make on much broader scales. And so to bring it back, Joanna, to what you said earlier, how you're interested in these cultural messages about relationships, again, like William just mentioned, these cultural messages, not only about relationships or gender, but about race as well, and how that's impacting you know, what we're thinking about, the folks around us, and then the policy policies that we support um, and the policies that are created. So very, very important to all of us. And could you give us an example um, 
of how we see these attitudes kind of playing out in our daily lives. I know we kind of talked about it kind of generally, but is there any specific example that you could give us? Well, I was just thinking about this recently. Um, you know, I'm in Texas and Texas and Florida are, are, are in the new, news, you know, all the time now. <laughs> and um, DeSantis in Florida has recently responded to um, the outcry about the rise in COVID, COVID cases there with a response that it's due to rising immigration, particularly from um, Latin American countries, despite the fact that there's no evidence of a relationship between immigration and increase in COVID. And in fact, it, it, there seems to be limited evidence that immigration from Latin American countries has increased with this corresponded with this rise of COVID. So in any anyways, um, the reason why that is an effective approach for DeSantis to his constituents is because of racial and immigration attitudes um, that can shape discourse around policy such as that um, a policy that relates directly to immigration or in terms of health policy, um, political leaders, pundits, and even individuals in interpersonal relationships can sort of draw on racial or gender attitudes to justify other things that they might wanna do um, for their own interest, uh, for their own self-interest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I love that example because I've noticed how we see a variety of different um, folks in political power making this case about immigration and immigration fears alongside COVID, COVID-19, um, COVID-19 fears and the rising cases. And for some, that might seem like an odd kind of juxtaposition, but exactly as you mentioned, we do have these kind of ingrained ideas or attitudes around immigration, around gender, around race more broadly, and those can be mobilized to get us to act in certain types of ways. So excellent, excellent example. And again, just the importance of the research that you all have done, which we will get into um, in a minute. Um, but could you all just tell us, when we're thinking about gender attitudes, um, overall, how have we seen gender attitudes changing over time? Or have they been changing over time? I, I can talk a little bit about this. So we know that, you know, sexist attitudes were pretty widespread early on, um, even, you know, in the 70s. Um, you know, there's two thirds of Americans believed that women should devote themselves to homemaking and um, that they could only raise children successfully if they, you know, were at home and didn't work for pay. Um, and there was pretty strong opposition to that after the 70s. Uh, and that plateaued somewhere around the mid 1990s. Um, but, you know, the most recent estimates are, you know, three quarters of Americans now rebuff that notion that women should stay at home and men should work uh, for pay. So there's been quite quite a bit of progress um, where we've seen a little bit of delay in, in changing gender attitudes is, is about what's going on in the family. So most people today would say that they think it's perfectly appropriate for women to work outside of the home. Um, but you know, women should also be primarily responsible for taking care of the kids and um, doing a lot of um, what, what we would call cognitive labor is like thinking about family needs and, and you know, kind of being the home manager. Um, so that that has been a uh, lagging, um, but overall, quite a bit of progress since you know the seventies. Okay, so we see these changes regarding, okay, it's okay for women to work outside of the home, um, but inside of the home, you still need to do, take care of kind of everything that's happening within the realm of family and heterosexual relationships. Right. 
Right. And we've seen change as well with, you know, attitudes about what men should be doing at home. So um, there has been, you know, a, a stronger push towards men being more involved in, especially in, in parenting and taking a hands-on approach that way. Um, but still, you'll still, you'll still see most people will say that, you know, the, the role for men is to provide financially for the family and, and everything is second, everything else is, you know, a bonus. A bonus. <laughs> a bonus. <laughs> okay. And then um, same question, but about racial attitudes, how have we seen those change or not change kind of in broad strokes over time? Um, yeah, a lot of the data on racial attitudes shows that by about the mid 1970s, these sort of old fashioned racial, racial attitudes often referred to as Jim Crow racial attitudes, the idea that differences uh, between black and white people are due to inborn qualities or God-given attributes or something like that. Those were really um, gone by the 1970s. Our data also confirms that. And they were replaced by what um, scholars like Eduardo Benia Silva refer to as new racist beliefs, which are still rooted in the individualist understanding that racial difference and racial inequalities due to individual characteristics, but they're more based in a cultural understanding so a person that might espouse a new racist attitude would say that racial inequality is due to a cultural deficiency on the part of the African-American community that uh, it's due to a lack of motivation or, or something like that. The reason why it's still called a uh, racist attitude is because um, the onus of racial inequality in these views is still rested on the individual and that operates to kind of erase the structural barriers like discrimination and um, uh, unequal access to education and employment opportunities. So by the 1970s, and this is mostly about, mostly true for whites, um, by the 1970s, these new racist views predominated um, and they remained pretty stable up until probably the last decade where we've seen um, those views decline in favor of um, what's known as like structuralist attitudes, uh, which we might think of as an anti-racist viewpoint where people view racial inequality and racial differences stemming from discrimination or unequal access to education. So we're seeing that increasingly across the board, across the population, particularly in the past um, six or seven years. But that perspective has also been the most common among African-Americans for pretty much as long as they've been um, collecting data. So. Mm, okay, so we have these kind of ideas of, or we have information about how gender attitudes have changed over time. And we have some information around how these racial attitudes have changed over time as well. But I know in your work and in your forthcoming article, you examine both racial and gender attitudes and how those attitudes uh, might intersect um, and change over time. And we're gonna get into the exact findings, um, but before we do, I just wanna know why was it important Important for you all to look at these attitudes together. Well, we we know that um you know we wanted to see the fuller context of people's lives. So, in in the you know scholarly research, we often see articles where people are examining either people's attitudes about gender or people's attitudes about race, um, but rarely do they cross. Uh, but in reality, you know, people's lives are not so neatly packaged into these very separate boxes. So we wanted to know, you know, if, 
if you're recognizing inequality in in one sphere, do you also are you also more likely to see this in another sphere? Because um, that has you know really important implications for like what we think about how we go about creating more equal societies. And just to add on Joanna's point, I think our our questions were also motivated by a lot of. Uh, Joanna and I are both quantitative researchers. We analyze survey data, but folks who do historical comparative work and qualitative researchers have been really good at seeing how people use these traditional gender attitudes to justify their racist perspectives. Mm -hmm. um, we know, for example, a lot of disparaging views towards uh, black families are rooted in a belief that families should be conventional nuclear and breadwinner homemaker models. And that's not possible for black families because they experience wage penalties due to labor market discrimination um, and other factors that contribute to black women's extremely high rates of labor force participation, which means it's not possible to have these sort of conventional family arrangements. Um, so that also sort of motivated our, our analysis. Survey researchers haven't analyzed the simultaneous views of race and gender. Um, and we wanted to do so to contribute to our understanding of how they might build off of one another. Mm -hmm. Yes, such exciting work. Well, we're going to get all into it, but let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with doctors William Scarborough and Joanna Pepin, and we are talking about racial and gender attitudes before the break. Um, they really broke down racial and gender attitudes and kind of how they've changed over time, but in their research, have been looking at both racial and gender attitudes and how those might coexist or converge or diverge. And that's what we're gonna get into now. So first I just want to, you kind of mentioned it a little bit before the break that both of you are quantitative scholars. You look at kind of large survey data. And so could you tell us how for this study, how did you all measure and analyze these racial and gender attitudes? Um, well, the, the good news for us was that the, there's so much research on um, racial and gender attitudes, just an enormous amount of literature. And a lot of that literature uses the same data set, which is the general social survey, which is actually the second most common um, data set published from in the social science, sciences, I recently learned. And it's, it's so common because it's like the number one source of attitudes on culture and social attitudes and policies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we really followed these prior studies, which have either looked at racial attitudes or gender attitudes, not their intersection, and we use the same measures that they did. So mm -hmm. in studies that look at gender attitudes, um, they use four questions that measure attitudes towards women in politics, um, attitudes about women's and men's caretaking abilities, and then two questions about views towards working mothers. Mm -hmm. um, and then whereas studies on racial attitudes um, ask respondents to explain, they ask their opinions on explanations for racial inequality. So why on average African-Americans have worse economic outcomes than whites in the United States? And the responses that they agree, that respondents disagree or disagree with are sort of designed to capture these different aspects of racial attitudes that have been uncovered in previous research. For example, a respondent asked whether they think inequalities are due to discrimination, um, which would be that structuralist perspective we talked about earlier. If they're due to differences in inborn ability, which would be that kind of old fashioned racism. If they're due to differences in educational opportunities, which is also sort of a structural condition. And then the last one is if these inequalities are due to differences in individual level motivation, which would be a new, that new racist uh, perspective. 
So we were fortunate. We looked at these same questions that had been analyzed previously, but instead of looking at them separately, we looked at how individual respondents held attitudes across all eight questions. Mm, okay. And then about how many people are surveyed here? So, this, so it's an annual survey that's, um, so we were able to look at um, data from 1977 all the way through 2018, which was the last year of, of data available. Uh, so it's about, it's about a thousand people um, in each survey year, and it's meant to be nationally representative of, of U.S. households. Um, so it's a, it gives us a pretty good picture about what's going on um, in terms of people's attitudes every year. So we have, you know, the total study is then around, you know, 23,000 individuals. Mm-hmm. And I know you all mentioned um, that the survey asked specifically, I think, about attitudes towards Black Americans and white Americans. Um, are there questions around Asian American and Latino Americans as well included in this data? Um, not the questions that we analyzed. Um, there may be questions in that survey, but none of them come to mind. I'd have to check again. Um, and it's a major limitation. In fact, the survey didn't even collect um, racial identification uh, for Hispanic or Asian respondents until the late 1990s. Mm. Um, So that was a a major data limitation in our study and we hope to address it in the future. Mm-hmm. Okay, awesome. So good. Now that we have a, a lay of the land of the type of data that you had and the questions that you were able to analyze, let's get into exactly what you all found. So um, I'll let you go, I, even though I read, y'all, I read the study and I want you to know, I just want to go ahead and plug and say, you all will be able to read the study as well. Um, and it won't be, you know, behind a paywall. So I just want to say that, um, but I want to let you all lead as far as what the f- major findings were around how these racial and gender attitudes kind of coexist. Um, I know there are four kind of major configurations of different attitudes, um, but I'll let you all start um, wherever you would like to with kind of your findings around those four different configurations. All right, I'll, I'll dig into it. Um, so I'll go through each configuration. I'll start with the biggest one and I'll end with with the least common one. So the most common attitude we found among 32% of respondents surveyed between 1977 and 2018 were what we refer to as new racialist gender egalitarians. So these are individuals who hold these kind of new racist attitudes. They believe that racial inequality between blacks and whites is due to um, uh, cultural motivation um, rather than structural conditions. Um, So they're less likely to view discrimination as a problem, as educational opportunities as a problem. Um, But at the same time, so they hold these regressive racial attitudes, but then they also hold progressive, liberal, um, even feminist gender attitudes. They believe that women and men should have equal opportunity in the public sphere of work and politics. And they also think that household divisions of labor should be equal. Um, So this class most resonates with kind of the common critiques of white feminism nowadays that white feminists have not incorporated an understanding of racism into their liberal agendas. Um, 31, so the next most common, it's almost about the same size, but very slightly less common, 31% of respondents were universally progressive on race and gender. These are individuals who thought that racial inequality is due to discrimination and unequal access to education. And they felt that um, women and men should have equal opportunities in the public sphere Um, and also household divisions of labor should be equal. So these are folks who are universally progressive, very consistent in their attitudes. 
Um, the next most common attitude, which occurred among 19% of respondents, was the complete opposite of that. These were individuals who were conservative across the board. Um, they held new racist views that thought racial inequality was due to cultural deficiencies, and they were gender traditional. So they thought that women were not suited for politics or leadership, and they endorsed um, sort of these conventional old school divisions of labor in the home. Um, and then the fourth category, which was 18% uh, of respondents were what we refer to as racial structuralist and gender ambivalent attitudes. So these are folks who have um, progressive attitudes on race. They think racial inequality stems from discrimination and unequal opportunities. Um, and when it comes to gender, their views are a bit more complicated. They support gender equality in the public sphere. They think women are just as suited as men for politics, um, but they still endorse sort of conventional arrangements in the home. They think that mothers should be primarily responsible for um, the caregiving of children. So these four configurations show that, you know, in two of them, you sort of have an alignment of progressive attitudes or regressive attitudes are the same, but in two other ones, you see that you can be progressive in some respects, but have regressive attitudes on, on the other side. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I could definitely see where those, the ones that are kind of matching across the board, whether full, kind of more progressive or more regressive, that makes sense. And that kind of speaks to this idea that people are having um, these similar views across the variety of different, whether social issues or inequalities. But of course, Joanna, as you mentioned earlier, um, we're more complex <laughs> than that. We can hold a variety of different kind of perspectives, some that might seem um, conflicting in many ways, but that we still make sense of, right, in some sort of way. So I'm really interested in the configurations where you have kind of more um, progressive in regards to either race or gender, and then more aggressive, you know, in regards to the other, you know, the other attitude. And so I'm wondering if you could kind of go more in detail about why this might be the case that people are having these, you know, maybe more progressive um, racial attitudes, but more regressive gender attitudes or vice versa. Yeah, we think that there's different mechanisms driving the contradictory attitudes. Um, I think it's first important to show, uh, to discuss among which groups of people they were most common in. So we see the, um, the folks who are progressive when it comes to gender, but regressive when it comes to race. That's most common among white women, but it's also most common among white men, um, which might be surprising for some and not for others, well, for us, it's important because um, white men don't necessarily benefit from gender egalitarian attitudes. Um, and so, but and they, they might be aligned with either people of their same race, which would be women, or people of their same gender, which would be uh, black men. So by comparing whether they were more likely to hold racial structuralist or gender egalitarian attitudes, we could sort of see where their allegiances lied kind of thing. And they were far more likely to, um, endorse gender egalitarianism, equal um, gender arrangements, then they were um, racial structuralism. And the reason for that we believe is because white men are more commonly partnered with white women um, in heterosexual or different gender couples. And so by endorsing uh, really just white women's gender equality, because if you endorse gender equality but you don't endorse racial equality, you're really just endorsing gender equality for white women. By supporting gender equality for white women, um, and given the fact that white men are most commonly partnered with white women, 
it actually operates in the best interest of white men through acquiring more resources into their household. It's sort of like, yeah, I'll support gender equality because I like when my wife works and she brings in more, more money into the home because we can have nicer things or a nicer house or more stability or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, the end result is that it actually, what we argue, operates as a form of resource hoarding, which is a key mechanism that sustains racial inequality in the US. Mm. Oh, that's so good. When we're thinking about why people might hold, you know, these various kind of combination of attitudes. So thinking about kind of your own group interest, and then how are you thinking about your group, right? Is it race? Is it gender? Um, and then again, what are those benefits? And I think that what you ended with was so key, thinking about resource hoarding. And then again, how those decisions that we might think of on an individual level actually aggregate and then lead to broader systems of inequality as well. So that's, ooh, I think like mind blown right there. <laughs> and then in the other configuration where there was um, somewhat of a, a, I guess, a mismatch, if you want to say that, between the egalitarian and the, and the more regressive views, um, what are some of your kind of thoughts around why that might be the case? So that would be people who are um, structuralist or progressive on race, but um, uh, regressive on, on gender. Yes. Um, well, to, to us, that attitude has really declined. So that one was the most common in the 1970s and the early 80s. And then you just see it really go down. I think it's less than 10, it might even be around 8% of respondents in 2018 held those perspectives. So they're very uncommon now. Um, and the reason for that, we think, is um, due to a growing alignment between racial structuralist views and gender egalitarianism. So it's been more common for people who are anti for sort of the umbrella of anti-racism to also encompass gender equality, where the converse hasn't really been true. However, if we're just focusing on those contradictory views, we really think it kind of um, reflects what um, a lot of uh, Black feminists critiqued in the 80s of the civil rights movement and how sometimes um, um, gender traditionalism was incorporated into the civil rights movement where you saw most um, male leaders of, of the movement sort of relegated women to the backstage um, uh, in, in those spheres. So we saw that a little bit um, in our data. However, it seems to be more so a thing of the past. Mm -hmm. And then you had two configurations where folks kind of held kind of similar views across racial and gender attitudes, whether that was more egalitarian in regards to both race and gender or more regressive in regards to both race and gender. And so for the views that were more egalitarian, kind of both with race and gender, um, how does that compare to kind of how these views have been in the past? So are we seeing kind of a movement towards more egalitarianism in general, or is this kind of similar to rates that we may have seen in you know, some previous time period? One of the most interesting things that I've, I think that we found in, in looking at the trends over time is that you know, from the 1970s through 2014, really what we saw was that people who held regressive racial attitudes um, were increasingly likely to support gender equality of, across both, you know, women's employment and gender in the home. Um, so it was, you know, it was among the people who continued to hold regressive racial views that were most likely to, you know, start um, espousing this support for gender equality. And, and that was true until about 2014. Mm -hmm. um, and then we, we see that 
people who are, you know, gender egalitarians and anti-racist, like that group starts to, to, to tick up in popularity um, quite a bit. And so I think that's one of the things that was um, kind of points to these cultural moments that happen. So, you know, we, we can only speculate exactly of you know why that may be the case um but we know that you know black lives matter um really became um part of the mainstream conversation around that time and so that was starting to shift some of the some of the conversations um that people were having and so we, we see you know increasingly people are you know if they're supportive of gender equality um also um you know attributing racial inequality to things like access to education rather than to a, a cultural deficit and I love that connection to these kind of uh, cultural messages, right? So again, kind of tying it back to how we kind of what cultural messages are really sticky for us. And so what we might continue to adhere to or perpetuate and how, you know, a variety of different social movements might then bring up some other type of cultural message that can then become more resonant and kind of start shifting some of those attitudes as well. Um, I'm also wondering for the folks who you all found that were kind of universally conservative, that 19%, uh, was that a kind of growing number or a shrinking number, um, you know, as we see over time or in various time points? Let's see. I, it, I, it, by 2018, it was the least common attitude, uh, mm -hmm. right along there with the contradictory views, progressive race and regressive gender. Those two are virtually absent. Um, in recent years and anticipate them continuing to, to, to decline. Um, um, so really it's almost like these are old fashioned attitudes. Although I think it's possible that they're spatially distributed in different ways, whereas there are pockets of the US where they might be more common um, and the population in those areas maybe is declining over time, which might be driving it as well. Mm, okay. And since you brought up this idea of kind of space and place, I'm wondering if um, region or any other kind of characteristics that you all saw that were associated with these kind of four different configurations that you all found. Yeah, yeah. I think that I, in the questions you sent us beforehand, you noticed in the paper that the South in particular did not fare very well. It sort of had the most regressive attitudes. It was the, the place where it was most common to be regressive on both dimensions, as well as to be sort of uh, um, gender progressive, but racially regressive. Um, and that comes up a lot, right? It's even uh, associated with like the popular stereotypes of the South as a conservative place. Um, and we, I think that that, I, in my opinion, we didn't, we didn't analyze these data. So I'm really drawing on prior research um, and the literature here. But I think it's really related to the legacy of the slave economy in the South. And I think we have to think about how gender attitudes were a key mechanism that sustained the racial ideologies of the slave economy in the, in the South, as well as uh, the Jim Crow era, as well as what's now sort of the post-civil rights era of racial inequality. I mean, during Reconstruction, that's when um, Ida B. Wells Barnett, who was based in Memphis at the time, did her original research that showed the significant connection between um, stereotypes of women's sort of domesticity and weakness that justified violence against black men in the South and lynching. And so you can see how these gender attitudes were a key mechanism that sustained like racial inequality in the South. And I think that's, that's persistent um, to a large degree. Now, it's not to say that the North or the West or the Northeast are not 
racist. They're, cer they're certainly um, all part of the US, which is sort of has a, um, a lot of similarities in it. But I think the ways in which the mechanism sustaining racial inequality, um, gender is very, very pronounced um, uh, in the South, sort of gender traditionalism as a mechanism sustaining it compared to other regions of the US. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you're right. As I was reading the paper and I saw, you know, that bit about the South and these very conservative and, and in many ways regressive attitudes that definitely stuck out to me. And so I had to ask yeah, yeah. about, you know, what those um, effects might be. And so thank you so much for, you know, kind of telling us more about why we might see some of these attitudes um, persisting in the South or being more prevalent in the, in the South. Um, let's take another break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. And we're here on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana and I'm here with Drs. Joanna Pepin and William Scarborough. And we've been talking about their research on racial and gender attitudes and how these kind of coexist in the ways um, that they coexist as well, thinking about more egalitarian views of race and or gender, as well as kind of more regressive attitudes about race and or gender and the different configurations that they have found. Now, um, before the break, uh, Joanna, you mentioned how you, how you all saw this kind of break um, right around that 24th 2014 time period, um, thinking about racial attitudes in particular. And so I'm wondering, you know, how much might we expect for attitudes maybe to become more egalitarian or even more regressive potentially based on, you know, various social movements? Yeah, I think that, you know, what will happen in the future question is, is always the million dollar question that I, I wish I could answer. Um, I think um, one of the things that's really hard to know is as the economy keeps changing and, um, you know, COVID has obviously disrupted so much of what's going on in, in American life now, what that means for attitudes. Um, and there's this question of like, are the attitudes driving people to, to change their behavior or like our behavior changes and then our attitudes, you know, slowly catch up with that. Um, and I, I think that is, has some important um, you know, information to tell us about what might happen, what might be going on in the future. So um, in, in one sense, we have like this very good news story that um, Black Lives Matter um, really seems to be making a difference. And that's what we're finding in our data is that 2014, um, we do see a shift towards more universally progressive attitudes. And so that might, you know, apply some pressure to, to what people are thinking about how to get a more equal society. Um, on the other hand, our data stopped at, you know, 2018, and we're starting to see some different um, conversations already about what, um, you know, racism means and how do we talk about racism in, in schools and in our communities. And so, um, you know, progress is, is never linear. Um, and, and the same thing kind of for gender is that we were, you know, there was kind of a good news story happening. Most people support or at least say that they support gender equality. And then, you know, COVID hit and we saw women bearing the brunt of 
um, family responsibilities and exiting the labor force and, you know, providing so much homeschooling um, for kids. And so um, it, it's difficult to know, um, where, you know, what will happen in the future. But um, I, I think our research points to some some places where we can leverage some, you know, some some pressure points for for bringing about some policy changes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And thinking about those policy changes, you know, where do we see, um, or I guess, how much do, you know, racial and or gender attitudes correspond to policy change? Because as you mentioned, it's one thing to say, okay, this is kind of how I feel. Um, and maybe people might feel some pressure to respond <laughs> in a certain way, right, around attitudes around race or gender. Uh, but how much do we see those attitudes or professed attitudes actually correlating to policy? That's a great question. Um, and it's unfortunately something that we didn't directly explore in our paper. So we're unable to say how those four configurations of race and gender attitudes predict policy support one way or the other. But we can sort of communicate with prior studies that have looked at policies. Um, and those studies show a high level of racial group interest um, in terms of people's policy support for things like affirmative action. Uh, for example, um, white men are far more likely to support affirmative action that's directed towards women than they are that affirmative action programs directed towards African-Americans. Um, and scholars argue that the reason for that is racial group interest. If it's in the benefit of the race group, white men might receive a dividend or at least to help sustain their racial privilege. Um, and our findings really correspond with that. We find again, the, the, uh, um, the role of racial group interest is, is huge in these configurations of racial and gender attitudes. And it might suggest actually that when we think about policy issues more broadly, we might not think about uh, support for childcare policy or childcare subsidies as rooted only in people's gender attitudes, but it might also be really correspondent to their racial attitudes. Um, upper middle-class white families might not want public investments in childcare because that's a valuable resource that they can hoard to maintain privilege um, mm -hmm. in terms of a, a racial hierarchical society such as the US. So I think, you know, we can't say that for sure. We have generated now a lot of hypotheses um, and theoretical propositions that require testing, but these are sort of the mechanisms that we're thinking about in terms of their relation to policy. Mm -hmm. Excellent, excellent. And I'm wondering what, um, do you all have any plans to maybe extend this study as we get, you know, more data um, and thinking about again, like being able to maybe see what these racial and gender attitudes uh, may be in, you know, 2018, 2019, 2020 and data from those years as well. So any future plans to extend um, this study? Jeez, I think time is, is the only barrier, this is, you know, we had an amazing time working on this paper. You saw there's five co-authors on it and each one of us brings just an amazing thing to the table. The third author, Danny Lambus is a graduate student at University of Illinois at Chicago, who is just uh, knows a lot of work about racial attitudes in particular black racial attitudes over time. I know he's interested in endeavoring more on how these configurations relate to African-American populations in particular. Um, Ronald Kwan is one of my colleagues at the University of North Texas. He's applying some of these um, uh, theories that we've focused on in our paper to an international context to see how um, attitudes towards sexuality are used to justify different stances on immigration in Europe. 
Um, and then Ronaldo Monasterio, who's the fifth author on the paper, is a PhD student at the University of North, of North Texas. And he's examining um, intersectionality in terms of how it relates to children's experiences of racism um, and whether that varies across race and gender and across a local context of racism and, and, and sexism. So there's a lot of different avenues here um, to go with. And I think all of us are just the only barriers is, is time at this point, which the way that COVID's going doesn't appear to be opening up anytime soon. <laughs> right, absolutely. Well, if y'all decide to continue um, in this particular vein together, um, I will be very excited to see kind of what future um, research might look like in thinking about these attitudes since they do impact kind of all of our all of our lives. And I'm wondering, you know, for our listeners who are maybe thinking about their own racial or gender attitudes and maybe have seen themselves in kind of these four configurations or just thinking about um, folks they know and kind of their, the attitudes that they hold. I'm wondering um, what are some ways or are there some ways that we could kind of um, talk about or even influence or kind of broaden folks' ideas as we're thinking about moving towards hopefully more egalitarian views on both race and gender? I think, um, you know, one of our, our uplifting finding is that we, you know, see this uptick in this combination of both anti-racist and anti-sexist attitudes. And so, um, you know, one of our takeaways from that is that one of the reasons that Black Lives Matter may have been successful in changing the conversation is that they took this broad approach of not, not talking only about racial justice issues, but like in thinking about who your allies might be. So, you know, white feminists were, were you know, slow um, to change their attitudes, um, but of the people who changed their attitudes, they were most likely to be the people who supported gender equality. So um, I think more, um, you know, broadly thinking about the ways that inequality affects people in different ways is is one way to, to create more of a movement. Um, so, we, you know, that seems like a positive um, takeaway. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. William, anything that you wanted to add? Um, no, I think Joanna um, hit it really well. And I think our the recent years of our data do seem promising. The most common configuration was that that endorsed equality across race and, and gender. However, you know, in the past six months, even we've seen just major attacks on those perspectives. And so really, it's like we can't pull back on sort of social movements. We need them now more than ever. Um, and um, and our, our preliminary results in our paper sort of provide evidence for their important role in shifting ideologies. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you again to both of you for being here with us this morning and sharing um, your research findings. I know I've definitely learned so much and I know that our listeners have as well. Thanks so much. This was awesome. Yeah. Thank you again to Drs. William Scarborough and Joanna Pepin for joining us this morning and sharing their research. I know I was definitely thinking about those four different configurations of racial and gender attitudes and thinking about how I know people who might hold, you know, these different attitudes, right, in these different categories, um, whether it's uh, more 
universally progressive or universally conservative or that um, more progressive in either race or gender and then more regressive um, in the other uh, set of attitudes. So, so much to think about, but definitely the good news, right, is that we've seen um, racial and gender attitudes becoming more egalitarian over time. So for today's positive note, I just wanted to leave you with a little bit of motivation or inspiration for the day. And so this quote says, two things you are in total control of in life are your attitude and your effort. So I hope you enjoy the rest of this beautiful Monday. And remember, wherever you are, you can tune in to Let's Grab Coffee on wyxr.org or subscribe wherever you stream podcasts. Until next Monday, I'm Sanaa.